1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're in a series entitled United, where we're studying through the book of 1 Corinthians with one central aim, and that is to live as a people united in the gospel. We've said this almost every week, if not every week, that unity in the church fuels God's people for mission in the world. And so I want to start this morning by by just saying we're going to talk about true worship today. True worship and how it is that we honor Jesus among the congregation as we are gathered together, the body of Christ. You know, worship is the act of giving or showing worth that is due. And so when we as the church gather, we are gathering as those who are unworthy before the one who alone is worthy, that we might acknowledge his worth and that we might respond to him. That's the uniqueness of Christian worship. We respond. You you see, no other religion, no other God that has ever existed has done something that can be responded to. You ever think about that? Everybody's beckoning to gain a false God's approval so he will do something. Or not do something if you're just trying to appease his anger. But God has done something. And in his something, he spoke and the word became life and that life gave its life for us. And in that giving of the life, we've received life from him. And worship that is true is about responding to God in a way that he is worthy of. And when we worship, we join with all creation. We are not alone here, friends. This church is not in isolation today. We, we join with all creation, which is continually worshiping God. Therefore, since true Christian worship ascribes worth to the one who is worthy, how and what we do matters. Let me just give you some illustrations from Scripture. Our activity in the evangelistic uh, uh, Christianity today, we, we draw out of a tradition where the preaching of the word is central. And we believe that that goes all the way back to the book of Acts, where it was the preaching of the word that centered the worship of God's people. Why? Because it is through God's word among which God speaks to his people today. And so we give honor to that is central in our worship to the preaching of God's word because this is the means by which God speaks to us today. The word of God by the Holy Spirit. In our, not only our preaching, but our singing. Our singing is, is an act that's commanded over and over and over again in scripture. And so we know that the activity of singing is important. The activity of speaking One to another, not just me to you, but one to another. This is important because what we say and how we say and the words with which we say, they encourage one another, they build one another up, they bear one another's burdens and all of these commands that we have in Scripture. Our praying, our confessing, these are the activities that center our worship upon God in Jesus Christ and His Word. Another Uh, scriptural commendation to us for worship is our posture. Scripture makes it very clear that our posture in worship 
matters. We see this throughout the teaching of God's word. They, they, they lift holy hands. Paul says, I, I want to see men lifting holy hands. Why? It's not just in Christian worship that that expresses something. It's in our lives that that expresses something. Be it surrender or victory. But for some reason, we can make an excuse as to why we should dismiss it from the way we express ourselves in worship. So lifting holy hands is important in Christian worship. Bowing down is important in Christian worship. Standing up is important in Christian worship. The, the, the Bible tells us in the book of Nehemiah that when they were returning to build the wall and rebuild Jerusalem and they were honoring God, they were in this period of revival and rebuilding and the men held their swords and their trowels in each hand day and night for, for like over two months until the wall was rebuilt. Why? Because they never knew when the enemy was going to attack, but they were constantly vigilant about doing God's work. But when it came time for them to stop the work and focus on God, Ezra would take the word of God, and if the word of God opened, the people stood up. It was just like, at you, bless you. Word of God opened, people stood up. It was a natural reaction, you know. It was a flinch, if you will. Just what they did. Why? Because it was the Word of God. And that was the right posture for them to assume. Standing up, laying down, laying prostrate before the Lord. It demonstrates something by our presence. You see, Christians are careful that our posture reflects what it is that we are doing in true worship. Our presence, this is the one I'm going to talk most about today, but our presence represents what we anticipate and what we expect to happen when we come in to this place and when we gather with this people. Our fellowship matters because it it represents and, and distinguishes how it is that we relate to one another and, and relate to those that are not of us. You know that, that welcome time in the worship service, it is now purported that that is the most alienating moment in the service for many people who don't know God. And so a lot of churches are just dismissing it and doing away with it. I would too if it didn't mean anything for us. Because I don't really care just to participate in stuff that's ritualistic. But for us to not regard those who come in and are with us and not even formally and informally, personally and relationally, to not welcome them? What could be more rude? What could be more rude? And so hopefully it never becomes a cold formality for us in that way. You see, the more worship is made about me, the less it will ever be able to give worth to thee. And the more that I make worship about me, or the more that you make worship about you, the less it can be true. Personal pronouns should be some of the most scarcely used words in gathered worship. So why do I begin this way? Well, because today's message is set in a context of Paul's teaching. And over the next five weeks, the next four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to begin to speak to them about their gathered worship 
times. He's going to talk to them about what it is that the worship, not only in their gathering, but just their worship as a church that identifies them in their witness and their testimony, what it should look like. And so that's why I begin this way. The Corinthians were divided in their fellowship, they were damaged in their unity, and they had destroyed their communion. That's what we're going to talk about today. And we're no less susceptible to the same propensities and the same tendencies in our fellowship, in our worship, in our community today. And so I want us to understand today that true worship honors Jesus in the way that we regard ourselves and in the way that we demonstrate or show respect to Others. You see, we exist to give true worship, honor, and glory to Jesus. And nothing else should define our purpose, nor should it define our practice, which, though is secondary to our purpose, doesn't make it unimportant in the way that we practice it. So I'm going to offer you four instructions today so every one of us can honor Jesus in the way that we gather. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, and look with me there. Paul writes, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Let me, let me stop there. These first 16 verses, I'm going to pause quite a bit because if we just read them all together, I might lose you, to be quite honest. This is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to work through because it can be some of the most culturally alienating instructions that we can receive from the New Testament. And so I'm going to chop it up so we can consume it together, okay? The first instruction I want to offer you today is this, that Jesus gets honored when we recognize that there is a right way for Christians to relate. Jesus gets honored when we recognize that there is a right way for Christians to relate. And what Paul does is he commends the Corinthians because there are aspects among them that are commendable. And he wants them to understand that that's not happenstance, but there's a right way to present self in worship. And it's the way that a person presents themselves in worship that is honoring to Jesus. That is honoring to Jesus. All glory, all praise, and all honor in Christian worship should go only to Jesus. And while we would be quick to say amen to that, there might be aspects of our life that would, in quite frankly, refute that in the way that we were regarding ourselves or relating to other people. Now, let me help you understand. I fought with this word all week. I don't really like it completely, but it's the only word that I can use to holistically communicate what I'm trying to say to you. But let me help you understand what I'm saying when I use the word relate to one another today. When I say relate, I mean three aspects. I mean the way that we regard self. In other words, the way we view ourselves, the way we present ourselves among publicly among other people, and also the way that we show respect. You could even say honor, but I don't want to confuse honor today. And I'm going to be talking about honoring Jesus. And so the way that we respect one another. You see, our presence and our participation influences and affects others. You see, what I should have done is have somebody do something really socially awkward in a group dynamic right now, and then I could have said, see what I mean? But I didn't. But I'm confident someone may yet. (laughs) 
you don't get to see everything that I get to see. You see, one of the things that Christians do is we pay attention to how our presence in worship influences others because we want to do all that we can do to encourage everyone to honor Jesus. That's where Paul's going with this. And so Paul was writing into a specific cultural context and he was desiring to encourage them to provide a faithful witness among the congregation so that congregation could be a faithful witness to the world, to the city. And at first reading, it seems easy for us to apply this only to a first century culture and to a first century people and to ask, I don't even know why this matters to us today. But friends, how we present ourselves in worship demonstrates who gets the honor. I remember one time I attended a worship service. Actually, a number of times this has happened in varying degrees. But in this one particular instance, and here I I say this, uh, well, hopefully not judgmentally, humorously more than anything, but there is a little bit of judgment in it. I confess. So is it okay for me to go ahead and say it now that I confess that? Gosh, I'm conflicted. Okay, so here's what happened. Massive screens covered the entire wall. Shadows were all that lit the room. Smoke was billowing up around the stage. And the leader was silhouetted only with the dimmest light. But his image was cast upon the screen and his words said, This is all about Jesus. That's funny because you're the only one I can see in this room. Our appearance matters. Our presence matters. Not only what we do, but how we do matters. And how we honor, listen, it's always a secondary matter to who we honor. But it's never unimportant. Clearly directed honor and glory is important because when it's not clear, it just gets to go to whomever each individual wants to grant it to. And that's not faithful. In true worship. Go to verse 3 with me. Paul begins by clarifying biblical authority. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And so what he does is he clarifies these lines of biblical authority that are taught throughout the scripture. And he's saying this to them, that true worship begins when biblical authority is rightly aligned. That if authority is out of alignment, worship will never enter into the true spectrum or realm. Honor in worship is bestowed by the way authority is represented. If you have no regard for God's word, you will have little need for what it says. And this carries itself out in the way that we do everything we do. He instructs in how and why biblical authority is represented in Christian worship. Verses 4 through 6, read with me. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. 
But since it is disgraceful for a woman to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. Now stop there for a moment. I told you if we just read all of this, you'd be checked out before we got to the end of it, right? And that's why I'm trying to break it down for us. Here's here's what Paul is doing. He's instructing how it is and why it is that biblical authority is represented in Christian work. Uh, worship. And the first reference he makes is just to a common practice. This, this might otherwise be known as a tradition. He grounds his teaching in the understanding of a husband and wife's relationship. So he's, he's not just talking about men and women in general. He's beginning to address specifically the relationship of husband and wife. And the way that a wife wore her hair and head covering represented her marital status in this day and time. And this is important for us. For a wife who wouldn't cover her head disgraced her husband and disgraced her marriage. We're talking about a tradition. It's not one that we have to embrace or even practice, but we need to understand their culture and their meaning that they understood in that day and time if we're going to understand how to bridge its application to us today. You see, he goes on to say that the husband and the wife are not a glory unto themselves, but they are a glory for one another. We still see it this way. It's still true of marriage even today. And when we demonstrate honor to our spouse, we are demonstrating honor to Jesus. Why? Because we honor the marriage relationship as from Christ. And so this practice represented a tradition to honor Jesus in a cultural context. Now, tradition is not always wrong. It's just never ultimate. That's what we need to remember. Tradition actually anchors us when it is properly applied because it connects us to a larger narrative that threads itself through the history of people. And and this is so true in our day and time. It has been true all of my life. And I'm sure it's been true in many generations prior. But each generation can can become so quick to throw off any constraint or to correct any ills of the former generation. And the way they do this is by throwing the proverbial baby out with the bathwater of tradition. I don't want any of that, so I'll take none of that. And tradition can very well become a distraction or even an infection when it defines our motives. We've always done it this way. It's not a wrong statement. It's not even always unhelpful. But it can become one of the most infectious traditional standards that a church holds to when it just holds to that because it doesn't want to let go and move to anything else. But tradition can also prove very helpful. You see, our our application will not necessarily remain identical across cultural boundaries or chronological boundaries. But obedience to biblical teaching must remain faithful in the church. And tradition that remains faithful to biblical teaching links the narrative of the unchanging gospel to the ever-changing epochs of time, culture, and generation through a faithful demonstration that honors Jesus. So Paul begins his teaching today with just a a common understanding, a common practice 
a tradition that was real for them. He grounds his argument also in a biblical teaching on creation. Look with me beginning in verse 8 through verse 12. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not dependent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. So here's the second foundation that he grants to his argument. He refers back to creation, not only to the tradition that they've carried out, but to creation, which is founded all the way back in the beginning in the book of Genesis. And he establishes that man and woman are independent, interdependent Excuse me, by three references. He, cre- he refers to creation's order when he says that man came first and received the command from God. He refers to creation's purpose when he speaks of God created them male and female. Genesis is very clear to distinguish the distinction between male and female and not to blur those lines. And he also refers then to the operation of people. In other words, but man is not independent of woman because, let's be honest, he comes from her. In other words, women give birth to babies. That's pretty obvious most of the time. And so he says that Man and woman are interdependent, not independent of one another. And he reminds us that Christians should rightly regard creation in worship because they're always present. It's not a matter of if creation joins us. It's a matter of if in true worship we join creation. They're already there. They were worshiping before we got here today. They'll be worshiping when we leave. And hopefully our lives will be joined in harmony with all that they're doing. And so Christians never ignore, hear me, gender. When we worship the one whom by, through, and for all things are created. And in the same one, Jesus Christ, all things hold together. That's why it is important for us, friends. And we never disregard God's created order, His purpose, or the way in which His creation operates. When Christians hold a right regard for creation in worship, hear me, because this is what is so divisive about so much misunderstanding in Christianity. Headship is balanced with interdependence. When I've preached on headship, I try to make very clear, we're not talking about value, dignity, or worth of an individual. Those are equal. But God distinguishes headship in the home to grant gender distinction and role distinction, not value, worth, or dignity. But what Paul does here is he says, look, this isn't about who's more important, men or women, husband or wife. This is about both are held interdependently. They need one another and they're valued that way in worship equally. And that's what he's encouraging the Corinthians to hold to. And ultimately, because it's a creational order, that's what you and I are held by as well. Christians honor Jesus 
in worship by regarding his creational design and his creational purpose. And that's what he's building his argument on for the way that they should participate. Why? Well, he's going to get to that in just a moment. But he wants us to be clear that men and women, husband and wife, are not interdependent, or excuse me, are not independent to do whatever we please, but rather interdependent. And how we, hear me, he's talking about appearance, how we appear matters. That was the very issue they were dealing with. And we dishonor our spouse when we disregard our design and our purpose. And ultimately, friends, no one has the right to disrupt the service by drawing attention to themselves. That's just never right. Why? Because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to honor Him. And so our appearance or how we regard self is actually a demonstration of how we show respect for other people. And so Christians are careful to honor Jesus by properly regarding, by never confusing gender and role through their appearance. That's what Paul is saying in verses 8 through 12. But he makes a final reference to build his argument upon in verses 13 to 16. Go there with me. Judge for yourselves. Here you go. You're told to judge. Is it proper for, and I'm going to do some of that in just a moment. I'm going to have some fun with that too. I hope you agree with me. Oh, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So here's Paul's third foundation for his argument. It's an appeal to common sense. I know. I used to think everyone was blessed with this. And I'm going to proceed carefully here as Paul does. Because I'm not crazy, and neither was Paul. Anytime you speak of a woman's hair, you proceed with caution. Most of the time, you just keep your mouth shut. But because I have to address this in preaching. But here's the general rule that Paul's appealing to. Generally, men's hair is shorter and women's hair is longer. He's not making a value assessment, but he's just stating a general reality. And there are norms of personal appearance that we accept in the world, right? There are norms of personal appearance that we accept in the world. Am I right? Yes. And then there are people who dress to go to Walmart. That's not normal. And you know it's not. I mean, you've got to think about this. And and what Paul is saying, if you study the finer minutiae of the Greek language here, here's what you will hear him say to us. Man buns and man bobs should never be. That's what he's saying. And as I've been studying this passage this week, God blessed me with reminders a number of times. That's my judgment for today.
He culminates his argument by applying to both what they wore and, hear me, why. Why? Why? And instead of me judging you or anyone else, he's going to say to us, judge yourself. Judge yourself. Some Corinthian women were evidently distracting the congregation by their dress. They were dressing like cult prostitutes and advertising themselves as available when they were married. And that was an issue in the fellowship. And it wasn't just an issue for the men. It wasn't just an issue that the men couldn't not see because they were present among the whole church. And let's be honest, women. Let's be honest with ourselves. I've heard some of you, right? It's not just an issue for men because when women dress a certain way, other women go, I don't know what she was thinking. Mm -mm. No, no, no. Yeah, so it's not just an issue for men. But what they were wearing, Paul says, revealed their motives and their attitudes, and it showed who they were honoring. And that's the key to what Paul is saying. And ultimately, by common sense, this should not be. This should not be. I remember one time on staff at a church in the invitation, the staff would line up at the front, and on week, one week, a young lady came to the front, obviously broken and moved by what had taken place in her heart. But it was one of those moments that her attire was so obviously distracting that when she knelt at the front, another minister and I actually had to step aside and stand shoulder to shoulder to block a very graphic view from the rest of the service and the rest of the congregation. Because the blouse was so low and the skirt so high that when she knelt at the altar, there was little left to the imagination. We don't think about that a lot. But we should never disregard it. You see, modesty honors God's creational command without advertising the creation. And the point is not that women should wear head coverings in our worship. Not go in there. Not in favor of that. It's not what Paul is telling us today. But the way we dress reveals how we regard ourselves and how we want others to see us. Paul does tell Timothy in chapter 2 and verse 9 of 1 Timothy that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. So modesty as a prevailing biblical principle remains essential to honor Jesus. What we wear and why, especially in worship, should honor God in every way. And modesty represents self-respect as one who is worthy to be respected. And immodesty centers attention in the wrong place for the wrong reasons. Listen, this is a soapbox of mine, and I'll try not to get on it today, but if sexy is your aim, then immodesty will always be your game. And I can say this, if immodesty is your game, sexy will always be your aim. I don't get it. Sexy is not a descriptor for godliness, ever. Take it to the married bed, but don't bring it out of the bedroom. We don't need it. Men, we need no help, right? Ladies, we need all the help we can get. 
And I think you understand the play on words that I'm saying there. But the church is not the place for that. The church should be a people that demonstrate a righteousness that is far superior to sexiness in every way. Modesty honors Jesus by presenting ourselves with respect for the body which is His creation. And so Christians should remain vigilantly aware of their presence, especially in gathered worship and how it affects and how it influences others. And and like Jesus, Christians submit to God's authority to bring him glory, just like Jesus did. Jesus was disrespectfully stripped to a cloth and with a crown of thorns in submission to the Father's authority. But he did that so he could be clothed and crowned as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. And when Christians practice modesty, we're demonstrating God's authority over us just as Jesus demonstrated God's authority over us. And we're testifying that we are clothed in righteousness and that we anticipate the crown of life that Jesus will give to us. That's what we want to be clothed in. We honor Jesus in true worship when we relate to one another faithfully to show God's authority over our life in Jesus Christ. That's the first instruction I want you to understand today. And it's the bulk of our time. But I'm going to center us now in the second instruction, beginning in verse 17 through 22. And here, let me give you the instruction, and then we'll read the passages. Number two, Jesus' honor is destroyed when divisions remain in the fellowship. His honor is destroyed. Look, Look at what he doesn't commend them for. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So he rebukes the Corinthians here because their gatherings are divided. They're very gatherings. You see, they're asking about questions for propriety in worship. And he says it goes a lot deeper than just your appearance. But your appearance matters because it demonstrates something that's much more grievous against the glory of God than just what you look like. People are not giving consideration for one another, only to hear me, certain others. And it's always the right certain others in the eyes of those who are giving it. And these divisions in fellowship are caused by the same values that the world uses to distinguish between people. We know that the situation here was a socioeconomic one. That the rich and the affluent were arriving early with their their rich fare for the potluck. But the time that those who had to labor in the fields until dark to make days, uh, uh, a day's wage and could not come until later in the day only arrived after the best fare was already consumed. And as Paul says, they were already drunk. They didn't even know the others were showing up and they didn't recognize that they had not been there to begin with. 
These are divisions in the fellowship. And he said the only good that can come from this is that those who are truly worshiping Jesus can actually be distinguished from among the divided crowd, but that they should not allow these divisions to remain because these divisions were penetrating, hear me, to the holiest of their observances. It was not just food and wine that they were consuming to excess. But it was the food and wine of the most important and the holiest meal that the church observed. In this day and time, the Lord's Supper was not observed as is typically done today. It was a full meal where they would eat. And then at the end of the meal, they would draw themselves together and the elements would be used to illustrate what Christ had done and the participation by each person there to observe. So basically, what was taking place is those who arrived earlier were taking the best of everything and consuming it and leaving nothing for those who arrived late. They were stealing God's grace. Not literally, but symbolically among the church. They were taking it all for themselves and leaving nothing for anyone else. And Paul said, this is what's dividing the church. You think that's okay because you hold no regard for anyone else in the church. And yet you don't even see it. You see, when we claim that Jesus redeems us and changes us, And that our values are changed with that. But we continue to act in the same way. We we destroy Jesus' honor and we damage our fellowship by the divisions that are created through exerting the worldly values upon the church. In other words, some people are important because they're important. Other people can be tolerated because, well, they're not important. And Paul's destroying this. No matter how well you perform religious exercises, when I make the church about me, I become the entry point for the world to access the church and do its damage and destroy Jesus' honor. Division always arises when people allow the world to access the church through their presence, through their participation. And Jesus cannot be honored in true worship when divisions remain among Christian fellowship. And so our worship around the meal we receive to remember Jesus should reflect what Jesus has done. And that's where Paul changes their focus. Now look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. Here's the third instruction that he gives us. Honoring Jesus begins with the meal that unites our fellowship. Honoring Jesus begins with the meal that unites our our fellowship. He's teaching on the observance of the Lord's Supper. This is the earliest record of instruction on how to implement the Lord's Supper among a local congregation. And he focuses the observance on the meaning for each purpose, for each person. 
the meaning. He instituted, Jesus did, instituted the Lord's Supper to teach his disciples what was about to happen so that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, he teaches us that the cup represents his blood that was shed for us, that the bread was his body that was broken for us, that our sins are completely atoned, that we've been reconciled to God. So Jesus uses it as a moment of teaching. He tells us as often as you do this, do this how? In remembrance of me, not in, in, in exaltation of any one of us, and also that we would observe through participation. Hear me, friends, because I'm going to dial it in for the next few moments before we come to the table, and you need to be aware of what I'm going to say. God is thanked for his provision. Jesus is recognized for his body that was broken and his blood that was shed. But hear me, the Lord's Supper, communion is more than a symbol. It is a remembrance through observance. Remembrance through observance. It is a, hear me, participation by faith of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. It is our death that we did not die because it wouldn't have done any good if we had. It is our payment for sin without any sacrifice from us. It is our cleansing received without our blood shed. That's what the Lord's Supper is for us. God gave the Israelites the Passover to remember his salvation. And Jesus gave Christians a new observant to remember this new covenant. You see, Christian fellowship centers on the remembrance of Jesus by the observance through participation of the meal that unites us. Right here, friends, this table. This table is our unifying center as Christians. It's essential for us. Christian fellowship centers on this remembrance. Do you remember what Paul addressed back in verse 8? He talked to him about eating, didn't he? What did he say about eating? You're eating in cult temples and your eating causes others to stumble. And he said, sometimes by your participation and sometimes by your association. But either way, your testimony is the same. It creates a stumbling block for other people. And he talks to us about how to apply this in culture. But what's he doing here? Cultic table out. True worship brought in. This is a new table for us. This is a new meal. This is a meal that unites us. This is a meal that consumes us. This is a meal that provides everything to satisfy our deepest longings and our deepest needs. And that's why he says, look with me in the last few verses. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. Why? Because in the local church, this is not my meal without you. 
in American Christianity, this is not my meal to partake anytime I choose without you. Without you. That's what he's telling them. If anyone is hungry, eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. Hear me, friends. Here's the fourth instruction for us. Jesus is honored when we remember his sacrifice by our participation in the gospel. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, that is in a manner with little or no consideration for what it means, we dishonor Jesus. This is the meal that unites us. And you may choke it down with little thought or no consideration, but that will only bring greater condemnation to you. That's what he says. You don't discern the body. You don't discern your own body, either through appearance or the way that you've respected yourself or the way that you've presented yourself for other people or your own soul and the way that you come before the Lord. And you don't discern the body, the body of Christ. And where others are struggling and where they're, where they're weak and where they're failing or where they're, where they're ill and where, they're, where sickness is ruling their life and their needs can be brought to a place where you can actually be used to minister grace instead of just stealing it from them. We don't come to the table just to do as we want on the table or we dishonor Jesus. We come to the table for one defining honor and it is the honor of the one who laid down his life that we might receive life. Personal examination. Here's the first act of personal examination. It begins with serious concern for unity in the fellowship, the body. Why would he begin with that? Why not? Shouldn't we do personal introspection? No. He begins here. Why? Because until you've learned to forgive other people, you've not really learned to be forgiven. Are there divisions among you? Well, that's not really a division. It's a little, little something came up. You know, we're dealing with it. We'll, we'll. What? What? I'm going to tell you, if the Spirit of God quickens your heart at a moment before you come to the table and you disregard it, you might as well not come. Because whatever you do when you get here will be dishonoring and damaging to you. The second act to prepare is to apply God's truth to our own life. Oh God, you know, man, I'm dealing with that sin, but let's just put that to the side. I'm going to go down here and do you right. I just want to do right by you, God. No, 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 friends. See, if you won't trust God's word, you don't want anything to do with Jesus. And so the second act to prepare was to apply God's truth, to let our lives, hear me, be judged by God's word. Search me and try me, Holy Spirit. That's the prayer before we rise to come to the table and see if there be any wicked way in me. God, I don't even trust my own mind to remember my sin because I will deceive myself to make me think better of myself than I even know. Spirit of God, I throw myself upon you pleading for you to show me any wickedness or way of unrighteousness before God. And this is our second act to prepare. Our third act to prepare is to wait for one another. 
strive to participate together. Listen, we, we can't all hold hands and, and, you know, skip down to the table and have a joyous time, but there might be someone that you can put your hand on their shoulder and you can pray for them before you come. There may be someone you need to go to and you may need to put your hand on their shoulder and ask for their forgiveness to seek reconciliation. Maybe they sinned against you and it's well known, but you need to know this brokenness will not remain between us. It might be such that it's just a slight statement. It might even be something you've been thinking about them, but you know that the Spirit of God is being hindered in your life because of that, and you need to ask for forgiveness and lay it out there and then come. You may even need to come together. That's what Paul tells us. True worship honors Jesus when we regard self and we respect others by cultivating gospel application among our fellowship. If we're going to come and receive forgiveness, we've got to show that we truly trust it by giving it, by seeking it, by receiving it. With every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to end today before we come to the table with this one question. Why are you here today? Have you discerned your presence among the body this morning? Did you give thought or consideration before you came? Have you given the same since you've arrived? Why are you here today? Friends, can I just say to you, let it be for the honor for the glory and for the fame of Jesus Christ. And if there's any other reason, or if you just came in negligent today, let the Spirit of God purge your heart. God, forgive me. I gave you no thought before I arrived today. I expected someone else to do something else for me, and I just took you out of the picture. God, break my heart right now. Forgive me. And bring upon me just a fresh renewal of what salvation means. That you might be rightly honored in my life.